The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Here back from you, what were some ideas that you had between the, uh, the link between this frame, which we handed out to you, and the story which uh, Gail told? We'd love to hear some of your ideas or comments about this. Or whatever was significant in your conversation. Yeah, there we go. And then, do you have a microphone, Gail? Or, or yes, okay. Okay, so we had a lot of fun in this conversation. Um, one of the things from a more literary perspective that was observed is that the frame provides sort of the positive aspects of the 10 skillful actions, and the story is this negative counterpoint to it of what happens when they're not followed. So kind of a cautionary tale. Um, The second, from a more literary, I guess, perspective would be that it really um, sets up the importance of the individual behaviors and also of the monastic order themselves as being a container or an exemplar, or kind of um, a memory in the world for these kinds of behaviors. Um, That seemed to be useful to the monastics, perhaps as an audience, as well as to the secondary audiences, which might be monarchs or wealthier people or people in power. it's really one of the things one person in here noticed is like the, the fundamental sort of slip was in generosity mm. in the story, right? Um, some other things that people observed was um, the interplay of causes and conditions between society and Matea and the monastic order in general. So there's that idea of the mutual benefit or even the circumstances that can allow monastics to survive. Um, and let's see as one person said things go to hell when not observed but some people remember (laughs) (laughs) thank you Don I I think there's uh, something really interesting there about it's a cautionary tale right? a little bit of the story and I know some scholars have speculated that they wanted to um, have a sutta written that could be a guideline for monarchs saying, look, here's how you should behave, by the way. Right? The, Buddhism, the Buddhists at that time weren't necessarily involved with the governments that were happening at that time in ancient India. That was more where the Brahmins were. But this, um, including this into the suttas was kind of a way for them to say, this is what we think of um, how rulers should behave. So thank you. Some other comments? Uh, just something, an adi- a, sh- a short addition to what Don said. Mm. We saw it as a um, as a pedagogical way of of exemplifying what is talked as a list at the beginning. So now you say, okay, here is what happens. But perhaps adding, um, Don was saying this that it, this is an example of what happens when you don't do it. But actually, the first few, se- well, the first six kings did do it. Did set the the, the Dharma wheel in motion. And so we actually do get to see what happens when you do follow it. And that's a very inspiring uh, example. Great, thank you. 
So adding to that, um, there's also an aspect of perhaps teaching um, in a more emotional way. So if, if the Buddha is teaching uh, the, um, the monks about their conduct and how they should act, but actually making the story come really alive as to what influence it will have on society at large, um, how people will steal and kill each other and five-year-old girls will be you know, um, given as brides. So bringing up this emotional aspect of uh, it's your behavior, it's basically you're the ones who will be keeping this up, um, both for yourselves and as um, keeping the way alive. Um, because in the story, the, the way is kept alive by people who go into the forest and come back. And also making, ma making the monks really, or, or whoever studies um, the teachings, really feel emotionally what the repercussions could be in society at large, not just if they don't, um, uh, if they, if they don't follow the teachings. Um, another couple of things that, that people observed in our um, group was um, that uh, when the beheading happened in the story, that's when the example was really set as how not to do things. So um, um, basically, again, learning by example the wrong way, and also when when um, the, the, t the thief comes and, and uh, is given a large sum of money. So, um, and um, um, there was one more point that was raised. Let's see if I can remember it. Um, going, going, gone. Oh, well. I, I appreciate one thing that you said. You didn't use this word, but something that I took from that is that the story is kind of a juicier or a more emotional way to relate to the teachings. So, yeah, thank you. Um, we were looking at the very beginning, monks being island unto yourselves, and we thought when the seventh king did what he wanted, things didn't go well. And finally, things were going so bad, he asked for advice, and he got advice, and he did everything except one thing, and it still didn't go well. So being an island unto yourself doesn't mean doing what you want. And there's the phrase down on what is beauty for a monk. The fifth one says, trains in the rules of training he has undertaken. So if we train in the rules that we undertake, then we are in a way, being an island under ourselves, unto ourselves, but the rules also come from the tradition. And we also thought there's a lot of choice in this frame, you know, concentration of intention and energy and consciousness and investigation, but our lives also have a lot of causes and conditions, the way the other group mentioned, so it gets pretty complex when we actually work it out. Thank you. So I think you're drawing on that being an island unto yourself doesn't mean isolate yourself because, in fact, what this story is showing is that there's consequences, right, with the greater and more individuals in society. Thank you. I didn't have a, a comment so much, but a question. And we were struggling with why um, a Buddha appeared long after life got better. Uh, it would seem like it would have been much help, more helpful <laughs> had, uh, had he arrived a bit sooner. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know why. I wonder about this. But I, uh, my take is that uh, it's uh, describing utopia. 
It's a, at 80,000 year lifespan, it's the best possible lifespan. Having this righteous king who's real so great, who's willing to step down in order to do the Dharma, it's the best possible. And to, have a, and to, to maximize how good it could possibly be, you have a Buddha there as well. So that, uh, even though it might, a Buddha might be more useful when, you know, at an earlier stage, if it's too early, if there's a sword interval, uh, people are too distracted to notice the Buddha. So, so uh, they say that in Buddhism that, that you need to be just a right balance of suffering and happiness to hear the teachings. Because if you have too much happiness and too much suffering, it it's kind of obscures the possibility. So maybe that uh, goes along with what you said. I mean, maybe... But, but um, that's, that's my, my theory, is that it's, it's describing utopia. But could I jump onto that, which is that there was utopia for seven generations before that, and nothing happened, and then there was this crash, and then, you know, what is this saying? <laughs> Maybe in order to have a utopia, to keep it, you need a Buddha around it. I don't know. I think one way we could look at this is that um, the... If you look at the story, there's it's uh, written in past tense. There was these great Chakravartins, Chakravartis, who um, behaved in such a way, lifespan got shorter and shorter and shorter until it becomes to 100. And then if you look at the Pali and a little bit the English, then it starts to talk about the future. Then people will start behaving better and better and better. Lifespan gets longer, and then the Buddha arrives. So, maybe so my, my question reading it has been, where are we in this sequence? <laughs> Are we on the way down? We're at a hundred. You know, lifespan is maybe a hundred. Are we on the way down? Are we coming back up again? I was noticing the comment about uh, decapitation in the story, and capital punishment still exists, and is. That says we're not out of this if we're still doing that and endorsing that. Right. So it's so it's possible to use this kind of sutta as a kind of a encouragement to analyze the consequences of things like capital punishment. Does it really help our society? Um, what are the what are the indirect effects onto our society as large? If the analysis of capital punishment is only from the point of view of the criminal and what's just and right for the criminal, you get maybe one answer. But if you look at uh, what's the relationship between the punishment and uh, how that ripples out into the wider society, then maybe you get a different answer. And so the suggest I think the people who are against capital punishment would suggest that society as a whole uh, is worse off with capital punishment. Even though the sucker got his just, his, uh, just rewards, um, society then suffer, you know, if you have that kind of belief, um, uh, it's still unfortunate for the rest of society. One of the things that struck me was the parallel to what happened, in, what used to happen in Billy Graham crusades. Because in the, the story, he would just, you know, he would start, we're all on, on the path to hell. But then when we get to the bottom, then redemption is possible. So it's a, there was a similar kind of a plot to the story that he repeated again and again. So maybe it's a, maybe it works. 
I, I think you're pointing to a particular way of preaching or sermons or something, right? Is to use this kind of a vector one direction and then switch in a vector a different direction. Maybe this is something that's been happening for thousands of years of this way of storytelling. It's a question. I'm wondering what the takeaway is from the eighth ruler not giving property, then the stealing, then the second stealing. Both times he tries to give money. It's like buying your way to something. What's, what's the takeaway that, that that's not generosity? What is that, and why doesn't that work? I, there's a, a number of answers are possible, but I would suggest that it's, uh, it's like the, the saying they have that um, it's better to teach someone to farm than to give them lunch. And so if you, um, if you give them lunch, then they're still hungry the next day. But if you teach them to farm, they can keep sustain themselves for a long time. So um, if you, uh, if you uh, provide them with the means, maybe you give them money, but you provide them with the means to be self-supporting, that then society prospers. But if you are... are um, if you're rewarding unethical behavior through money, then uh, it's too easy for people to feel like that they don't have to do anything now. They don't have to work. They can become wards of the state or something and just uh, be taken care of or steal to get more or something like that. So, so how we support people, how we su- uh, in our society, and what how is very important. And sometimes, since you asked about money, giving money sometimes uh, can be counterproductive. But giving people the means to do something further on their own can be very useful. So what, what you can see with this, I think, <clears throat> this kind of, you know, this is scripture, if you like. And, it's, uh, and for those people who like to do these things, uh, this, provo- these, this, kind of, uh, this kind of teachings can provide people with scriptural authority or ideas or reference points for social policy. Now, it, may be, it might be possible to interpret this in radically different ways, you know, opposing ways even, but you can see it maybe it's not so far away to start looking at uh, how do we take care of the poor and do we provide them with welfare and food stamps or we provide them with, with, uh, with training programs? You know, what, what should we do here? And, I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I'm just saying that it suggests, this kind of thing suggests, it's very suggestive, it's evocative for how we want to think about our society and what we do, and whether it's wise or not to go back to Scripture for these kinds of ideas. And, I, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of am suspicious of that movement. It seems like things should, social policy should stand on its own good merits. But uh, still, the, the, um, People, people will go back here. People will say, what does Buddhism have to say? And specifically ask that, or if a Buddhist teacher or minister is asked to go to interfaith panel on good government behavior, you're kind of expected to kind of speak from your tradition, not from just, you know, not from, you know, a really well-thought-out report from, you know, some university study. And so you can bring this along and say, My, you know... <laughs> So um, I first thought I wanted to comment on the fact that, that Donna is part of the story. 
and so is the giving, you know, the generous giving to these uh, thieves that was not successful. So it shows two ways of being generous that are quite different from one another. Don't necessarily one does not necessarily mean the other is skillful or helpful. Um, I thought it was interesting too that um, what you just said about do we turn to scripture to find out what is skillful, and yet the scripture itself is saying that we should turn to what is um, right action or right behavior that's not harmful, that's skillful, that's helpful for people. So if that's the scripture, in a sense, it's um, how, does, how do our actions stand in the world and how we are in the world rather than what is a, a, a paragraph or sentence of text saying, and yet our text says that. So uh, it's just kind of an interesting contradiction. Yes, yeah, so maybe I'll um, add one thing to this. As we notice that one of the um, pivotal points is one that Eighth King did not give property to the needy. And so maybe we could think of that as the flip side of that, is maybe this king was greedy. Maybe this king had desire for more and didn't want to give you know, to those that had needy, who were needy. So this ties into the Aganya Sutta, which we saw earlier. And of course, this idea of desire or wanting more is one of the key Buddhist teaching, right? The second noble truth. So I think there's um, a number of interesting ways that we can interpret these stories. And it's, I think it's kind of fun to look at it from different perspectives and to talk with others and hear about all the different ways. I think that um, earlier in my life, I think I would have much, been much more dismissive of religious stories. And, um, and what I've come to appreciate is that, uh, as I said this morning, you know, societies are built on stories. And there are people who say that uh, religions, in fact, have more to do with the stories that religions tell than the tenets and beliefs of the religion. And so people organize their lives themselves around the stories that are key and central to particular religions. Um, they find themselves, they relate to it, they identify with it, they bounce off it, they repeat those stories, they tell the stories over and over again, they tell the stories over and over again with little twists and turns with every generation, a little bit different. And so, um, uh, so rather than looking at uh, religions from the point of view of belief, we can look at it from stories we tell. And so Buddhism has a whole uh, treasury of stories. This is one of them. And the stories you tell in your Buddhism to yourself, the ones you hear, the ones you live by, helps, helps kind of orient yourself, to, orient you to your life, to your society, to yourself, to your practice. And so what stories do you use? And, and uh, if you listen to uh, these Dharma teachers like myself, you know, uh, in the Western American Dharma teachers, I would uh, propose that we use an infinitesimally small percentage of Buddhist stories in our Dharma talks. <clears throat> and we've chosen particular ones because they say, particular, they, they, they represent or speak to a particular orientation, understanding of the Dharma that we want to convey. And, uh, and so we keep falling back on the same ones over and over again. And, um, and so do we know what we're doing and are there other stories and when, when is it useful to have stories? And is, is these stories like this, do they have a place? Um, Part of what a religion is, I believe, is not only is also the shared stories that a group of people have together, because when we have shared beliefs or shared stories, shared language, then we can find each other. We we, we relate to each other. We find our way together. We can grow up together. We can evolve together. We can 
have shared understandings together. And so if we have, this, uh, if we, like for now, if, um, you know, all of us are now familiar with the story, perhaps, if we run into each other, we might kind of like nudge each other, oh, look, that's the eighth generation. <laughs> and you'll know immediately what, what that means, the eighth generation of kings, you know, the person who's being greedy and not, you know, giving in the wrong way or something. And, and, um, and uh, you know, so, you know, so these stories can have a life. It's kind of like shorthand or evocative or even poetry. And they allow other things to happen. Um, and um, so, you know, one of the, this day was framed a little bit around storytelling in Buddhism. And one of the things I hope you'll consider is your relationship to storytelling and stories. And my proposal to you is that even if you're kind of anti-story like I was, like, you know, that's too, you know, that's not, you know, they're kind of like fanciful stuff. Our, our, our lives are built on stories anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and so rather than kind of dismissing them, um, kind of appreciating their role and, and uh, probably even the people who are the most a-story, non-story oriented, probably have stories that they don't really realize they're living under. And so I think I begin to appreciate story and storytelling and its role in religion, role in religious practice, role in a community, role in religious religious community is a very useful thing to do. And uh, I think it, it makes our lives richer and uh, this kind of thing. There's like literature and poetry makes it richer. Now that we have heard the frame and, and the story and reflected, um, in my mind I was trying it, tying it all back to the name of the sutta. As you spend much time on that, um, lion's roar, turning the wheel, two very important concepts to really emphasize this sutta as a very important teaching. So just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. No, I think um, this idea uh, in Sanskrit it's Chakravartin and in um, Pali it's Chakravati. This is a really important idea that was um, in ancient India even before Buddhism. In ancient India they had, uh, as Gil said, the wheels or sometimes the wheels of the chariots. And if you um, are a monarch then the wheels of your chariots will be unimpeded. You can go anywhere you want. But there's also the idea that circles don't have a beginning or an end and they have a universality around them. So it's also a really um, big idea. And plus this um, Pali word vati has a number of different meanings. So here um, we're translating it as turner. This also means like duty or obligation or something. So something related to the wheel. So what is like your obligation to... Um, the universality or to, um, let's see, if, if you're going to be a monarch to ruling. I think it's a very powerful idea that wasn't exclusively in Buddhism. It was also um, throughout all of ancient India. And I would say that as well about um, with the lion's roar, I believe. I think, that I, I think this is true. That was in ancient India as well. I know it's in a number of different suttas. In fact, there is a sutta that's called the lion's roar, and you'll see lion's roar associated with other suttas. And it's not only the Buddha in these suttas who does lion's roars. It's some of his um, primary disciples, Sariputta and Moggallana, they also sometimes are doing 
lion's roars. I'm not sure if that's what you were addressing. I just <laughs> went off on that. But So <clears throat> to end, actually, I have a couple more things I want to say about this. Uh, one is that um, the reference to Maitreya, this future Buddha here, <clears throat> is the only place in the Pali Canon where this occurs. So uh, Maitreya Buddha becomes very important later in Buddhism. Uh, the historical records makes us think that he starts appearing on the scene around the turn of the millennia, about 500 years after the Buddha. And so why, what, what's he doing in here uh, so early? Uh, uh, suggests that maybe this text or this, this part of the text itself is fairly late. Um, Maitreya Buddha becomes, the future Masonic Buddha, Buddha to come, it becomes an extremely important idea in many, many areas of Buddhism. I can't underscore how important it's been. Uh, here again in the Western kind of Vipassana Buddhism, it's like, that's kind of myth that we don't mention much, but in Sri Lanka and Burma and Thailand and China and Japan, many of these countries in Nepal, Burma, um, Tibet, all these, all these, there's various times uh, the emphasis on Maitreya and the future Buddha and uh, becomes extremely important. And there's been messianic movements where um, uh, people have assumed that they were Maitreya Buddha and they've created armies and they fought the Chinese government and it's been a wild world with this Maitreya. So, um, so the kind of so this is the, in the Pali Canon. This is the only reference to it. Um, there's some idea that this whole idea of a wheel-turning monarch who owns, you know, conquers the whole known world, uh, might have uh, also been something that arose in India sometime after the Buddha. Uh, within probably two generations of the Buddha's life, um, Alexander the Great came and conquered India. And so he was like the, one of the biggest uh, conquerors of, up to that, his time. And that made a big impression on India because he came into India. And, and so it could be that uh, his example was part of the, why this kind of took prominence. And then about two generations after Alexander, there was um, King Asoka, King Ashoka, who also did conquered much of known India at the time. And so it's in the context of these large emperors that maybe some of these texts might have been written. In terms of uh, literature, um, uh, so these, these texts in the Diganikaya, these long discourses like this one here, as I keep emphasizing, were literary works, and they were done with great care. And some of the care and literary kind of elements are a little bit invisible to us uh, reading in English and not having the full background and or appreciation of how this kind of literature works. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of puns that go on, a lot of wor wordplay that go on that are hard to translate into English. And there's a structure that you see, the f just a simple, the simple uh, you know, frame, story, frame structure. That's a very simple one. There are more elaborate ones that go on. There's uh, uh, other references. So the, the duties the, of, the, of the wheel-turning monarch, um, uh, there's actually 12 of them. And I suspect that that was a number of choice for either one of two reasons. One is that um, in the, in the, when the, the sutta where the Buddha turns the wheel of the Dharma, they mention 12 duties that the practitioner has in relationship to the uh, Four Noble Truths. So it might be uh, kind of reflecting off that. It all, but even the 12, the 12 uh, duties of the Four Noble Truths and the eight, uh, 12 fold chain of dependent origination. The number 12, it seems like in ancient India, was often uh, seen or presented as a wheel, maybe with 12 spokes or something. 
So it just kind of speaks to something that's already existing in the culture. And then finally, this connection between the frame and the story, and how, you know, I, my proposal that it's very consciously done and carefully done, cra- carefully crafted, uh, can be seen by the following. In the near the end. There. So the parallels between the frame and the story. The frame offers monastic practices. The story offers uh, monarchical practices, practices of a monarch. The be your own refuge is parallel to pending on the Dharma. So it's a little bit different, but uh, four foundations of mindfulness, honoring the Dharma, keeping safe in one's preserves, protecting every being in the realm, uh, the increased lifespan for the monastic that comes from the four roads to power uh, corresponds to how ethics increases lifespan for in the in the story. Uh, right conduct increases beauty for the monastic. Again, ethics increases beauty for the for the in the story. Jhanas create happiness. It's not clear what the parallel is in the in the story for that. It's either uh, the fact that there's very little disease that's mentioned that makes happy. Or one scholar has said, it's because it says in the sutta that when the lifetime is 80,000 years, <clears throat> uh, people can start becoming sexually active after 500. And so that means you have a lot of years to be sexually active. <laughs> so maybe that's the happiness. <laughs> and uh, jhanas create happiness. No, no, that happen. And then brahma-viharas create wealth. And uh, the 80, people who live 80,000 years are prosperous and wealthy. And the arhats create power. The people who live 80,000 years are powerful. So these things are explicitly said in the text. And so you see they line up pretty well, except for this, uh, this happiness thing that doesn't seem... And I, my, my argument would be that these things are done consciously. And uh, Someone who's writing this is thinking this out. Okay? Okay, so let's take a break. And can we take a 10-minute break? Because then we come back for half an hour. Or they just finish up the day.